So we have been, uh, for the past couple of weeks, uh, we have been talking uh, about stewardship, right? Uh, and, and talking about what it means, what it really looks like to live out uh, the, the idea of stewardship in our, in our faith journeys. And, and there's, a, there's a, something that we do pretty much every year uh, about this time, and there's some good reasons for it. Uh, this is also the time of year when our finance team starts getting together and, and putting together a budget for next year, and certainly it is helpful to know, uh, have some idea about what we're looking at in terms of revenue coming in so that we know uh, what kind of ministries and what kind of mission and whatnot uh, we w- should be able to, um, uh, to fund. But what it also means is this has become a time of year that many of us dread, right? And, and I say us very deliberately for two reasons. One, because I have sat exactly where you're sitting. And, and when I did, uh, I never really liked these types of talks very much. Um, I always found it a little distasteful to sit in church and, 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 and have somebody make me think about how much money I was going to give to the church. And the second reason is um, I don't like talking about money. I certainly don't like asking people for money. I am not a salesman, uh, and there's a really good reason why that's true. Because if, I, if my family depended on me getting other people to give me their money... Uh, we would starve, quite frankly, right? This is not why I went into ministry. It's not why I went to seminary. Um, And when I think about uh, the time when I was discerning God's call to ordain ministry, this was not what I was thinking about, right? And so that's why I think it's so important, the approach that we have taken this year, because we've, we've taken a step back and taken a broader look and, say, and have said that stewardship is about more than money. It's about a lot more than money. Yes, it is about money and how we share our money, but it's about really how we share all of our resources, how we, how we choose to use all of the things with which God blesses us for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And we have chosen to, to do that. In fact, we've made covenant to, to look at that as a, as a family of faith through the lens of the membership vows that we all take when we join the church. That we will faithfully support this congregation with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. And two weeks ago, we explored what it means when we pledge our prayers, what it means to be good stewards of our prayer life. And last week, we talked about the ministry of presence and how we pledge, what it means to pledge to be a physical part of the life and ministries of this congregation, particularly in these times when presence tends to have various meanings depending on what your personal situation is. And today, we're going to turn our attention to what it means when we pledge our gifts. And yes, I'm talking about money what it means when we pledge to be part of the financial life and ministries of this congregation. And as we prepare to do that, I think we should begin with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Gracious and loving God, in this time and in this place, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, honestly, there are a lot of places we could, we could start uh, in having this, this conversation. Probably the easiest thing that I could do would be to go back to the Old Testament and find the, the parts that talk about tithing and say, well, there you go. That's what you need to know. 
Because the Old Testament makes it clear that to be a person of faith means that you tithe. You give one-tenth, actually the first-tenth of your income or your crops or however it is that you make your living, that you give that to the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And so it would be easy just to say, well, there you go. It says 10%, so go home and sit down and, and, and figure out what you make and, and take 10% of that, and, and there you go. All will be well. And I suppose if we all did that, then all indeed would be well on the, on the budget, at least for a while. But we've agreed that, that stewardship is more complicated than that. It's, it's broader than that, and it's certainly something more fundamental than that. And so as I really sat down and, and started kind of digging into this, I, I came to believe that the best place to start was with that story that Annette shared with us from the 12th chapter of Luke's gospel just a few minutes ago. That familiar story of the, of the wealthy landowner who has so many crops he doesn't know what to do with himself, quite frankly. Right? And, and, it's, and I say that this is the best place to start because of all the places in the Bible that talk about money, and there are many of them, I believe that it's this story that really touches us where we live. And I say that because a story starts out for us problematic to begin with. Because we know when we start reading the story, we know from the way Jesus tells the story that the guy, the landowner, he's the bad guy in the story, right? He is set up from the very beginning as the antithesis of what it means to be a person who follows God. The story itself is easy enough to follow. This is a, a, a relatively wealthy landowner. He's a farmer, right? But he's a very successful farmer. And he goes out and he harvests his crops one year, and he has what is, what is called an abundant harvest. It's huge, right? In fact, it's so big, it's so huge, that his barns are literally overflowing. There's not enough room in his barn or his barns for all of the crops that he's harvesting. He's filled them up, they're overflowing, and there are still crops out of the field that will rot if he doesn't do something with them. And he is in a quandary. What in the world am I going to do? And suddenly he hits upon an idea. He says, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll take down my current barns, and I'll build bigger barns that will store all of this largesse. And then he realizes that if he does that, that he is going to be sitting in a pretty good financial position. In fact, an excellent financial position. He says, if I can do that, I'm not going to have to work anymore. I'm going to be able to kick back, to take it easy. I'm going I'm to eat, drink, and be merry. Life is indeed really good. And that's where the story gets complicated. complicated. Because it's that moment that God speaks to him. And God calls him a fool. And he says, this very night, your life is going to be taken from you. This very night, you are going to die. And when that happens, what in the world are you going to have, have you accomplished by hoarding up all of this treasure for yourself? It's not going to change anything. All of this work, all of this effort is going to be for naught. And God says then, and it is just so with anyone who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. It's tough stuff. 
Now, as I said at the beginning, the problem with the story, though, the problem with the story is that we are to believe that this landowner, this, this man, is a bad guy. That he is the literal antithesis of what it means to be a follower of God. And I suppose you could argue that, well, you know, if there are people all around him suffering and and he's sitting back and hoarding all of this stuff, if there are people who are struggling to make ends meet, struggling to put food on the table, if his workers are not not being compensated fairly and they're having trouble taking care of their family, then yeah, then I'm on board. He's a bad guy. He's evil. The problem is the story doesn't say that. The problem is that Jesus never goes there. It's quite possible that that this guy is all of those things that I just mentioned, but it's equally possible that he's not. And so I can't help but wonder, how does that change how we hear the story? How we hear the ultimate message? So stay with me for a minute. Let's assume that he's not all of those things. Let's assume that he is a farmer who gets up early every morning, who puts in a day, who planted his crops at just the right time, who who got up every day and nurtured them and tended them and kept the weeds out and and kept the the birds away and the other other animals that tended to go in and, and, and destroy crops. Let's assume that he caught a couple of breaks on the weather, and when it came time to harvest, he harvested it at just the right time. And he had an abundant crop. So abundant, in fact, that he doesn't have to work anymore. He can sit back and he can enjoy the fruits of his labors. Is that a bad guy? Let me put it another way. Assume for a moment that this man is one who gets up every day and goes to work. He's worked for the same company for 30, 35 years. He works hard, and because he's worked hard and because he's loyal, he's been promoted up the ranks in the company. Every paycheck, he takes a little bit of that paycheck and puts it away into savings. He hired a financial planner early on, and that financial planner got him in the market and kept him in the market long term. And when he turns 65, he is able to retire, and not just to scrape by, but he's able to enjoy the comforts of retirement, to travel a little bit, to see the world. Is he a bad guy? Or is he a guy that many of us would choose to imitate in terms of his financial acumen. See, that's the problem with the story. The problem with the story is we're supposed to see this guy as a bad guy, as the antithesis of following God, and yet for many of us, we look at him and say, that sounds like a smart businessman to me. Sounds like a guy who's got his eye on the future, and that's the problem with talking about financial stewardship. Because the reality is, the reality for all of us is that we live a life with finite financial resources. Yes, they, yes, they hopefully go up as we, as we go through our lives, but 
on any given day, our financial resources are finite, and yet there seem to be unlimited demands on them, do there not? I mean, first you have the present. You've got to do the, the basic stuff, right? You have, to, you have to pay for a place to live. You have to put food on the table. You have to put clothes on yourself and on your, and on your kids. But it's not just the present because once you've got the present covered, then you have to look to the future. Because we're told if we're to be responsible parents, well, we need to be putting money away so that we can send our kids to college. And let me tell you, as, as someone who has two kids in college right now, it's not getting any cheaper, And then once you have your kids covered, well, then we're told that as responsible adults that we need to be putting money aside so that we can take care of ourselves in retirement so that we don't end our lives as a burden to our families. And then once you have the future covered, then then there's an unlimited opportunity to do good things for others. right? Whether it's save the children or adopt an orphaned pet save a Bengal tiger, help people in Haiti pick up the pieces after an earthquake, or help residents on the Gulf Coast rebuild after not one or two or three, but four hurricanes this season alone. You can't turn on the TV or go online without someone telling you that for the cost of a, of a Starbucks coffee every day, you too can change a life. And so it begs the question, does it not? When we get to this part of our stewardship campaign, why is this different? Why is this different from any other opportunity that I have to give? What, why is this different than any other demand that I have on my finances? And friends, I think the answer lies right here. Not just in the story that Annette shared, but rather with what bookends it. Because what starts it all, the reason Jesus tells the story is that a a young man shouts at him from the crowd and asks him to help him convince his brother to share his father's inheritance with him. Now, more than likely what's going on is the guy who's shouting at Jesus, he's a younger brother. And he's not happy that his older brother got a double share of his father's estate, which was the custom of the day. But just because it's a custom of the day doesn't make that any easier to be the younger brother, right? And then after Jesus finishes telling the story, he then turns to his disciples. And he says, do not be afraid, little flock, because it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He tells them, don't worry about it. He says, everybody's worried about this stuff. Everybody stresses over this stuff. Everybody worries about how to make ends meet. What he says is, he said, but if you keep the kingdom first, if you focus on the kingdom first, then you'll know what to do. You'll know exactly what to do. And then he says, for wherever, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you know, we've, we've heard these words a hundred times, right? In fact, I've heard many pastors use those very words in stewardship campaigns just like this to try to convince you that if you will just give to the church, then you will find your heart will be there. Your heart will follow the check, right? That if you invest in the church, then you will begin to feel ownership in the church. And the truth is, 
that we've used that backwards forever. Because that's not what it says. In fact, that's the opposite of what it says. What Jesus says is where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. In other words, look at where you're spending your money. Look at where you're investing your resources, and that's where your heart is. That's what you care about. That's where your values are. That's what's important to you. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then we've approached, we approach stewardship all wrong. Because the first question of financial stewardship shouldn't be how much, but rather how important. How important is this to you? How important is it to be part of this church family? How important is it to you to be part of the the life-giving, redemptive, restorative, holy ministry that happens here in the name of Jesus Christ? How important is is it to you to be part of something bigger than yourself, to be able to say that the, that the world does not begin and end with me, but rather with the kingdom, and I am part of building it, and I choose to be part of it with this family of faith. How important. Because I believe what Jesus says is that if you answer that question, then you'll know what to do. I believe if, if, if we believe in the power of prayer, then we will pray each day not only for ourselves and our families, but also for the, for the restorative, redemptive work that's going on in this congregation, for the health and vitality of Ash Lane United Methodist Church. <clears throat> if we believe that where, where two or more people are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, that God is present and active and moving, then we will no doubt choose to be here and be a part of what happens here. And likewise, if we believe that what happens here is something that is good, something that is of God, something that is holy, then I believe we will choose to invest our financial resources here as well. And so we begin with the question of how important is this to you? I will simply tell you that I've only been your pastor since July. And Already, I feel incredibly blessed to be a part of this community of faith, and I am beyond excited to see where God leads us because I believe that God is leading us to incredible things, to an incredible future, and I want to be a part of it. Melissa wants to be a part of it. And so, friends, we're in. We are all in. And I hope that all of you will be as well. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, uh, we are just truly thankful, truly awed by just to imagine the future that you have for us, that you dream of for us. Lord, you have already led us on an incredible journey. And yet there is a sense that we are just beginning again. And so, Lord, let us look to that future with boldness and with with faithfulness. And let us truly follow you, that your will might be done, 
that your kingdom might come, that your name might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.